Well, this time our kids, our kids can head to Kids Praise. See the Scheidegers in the back, and they'll be happy to take them down there for you. If you have a Bible, you can open it to the book of Acts. We're going to be in chapter 12 this morning. In fact, we will be wrapping up chapter 12 this morning, looking at the death of Herod. What if I told you there was a sort of sinful attitude and behavior that you could possibly be participating in that God sees on the same level as occult practices? Would you want to know about it? And would you want it out of your life as soon as possible? What if I told you there was a sinful disposition that our gracious God opposes to the point that he resists those who stand in it? Would you want to separate yourself from that disposition? Would you want to make absolutely sure that it has no foothold in your heart? Well, there is a sin of this nature, and the Bible tells us about it. 1 Samuel 15, verses 22 and 23. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And so prideful rebellion is like witchcraft before the Lord. Divination. This is how much he hates it. This is how much he loathes it. James 4 verse 6, and in Peter's first letter he says a very similar thing. But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the prideful. Can there be anything more devastating than being opposed by the creator of the universe? Can there be anything more terrifying than having him as your enemy? This morning, we see the awful sin of pride on display in a very brash manner. Herod Agrippa, the one who who had James beheaded, the one who had Peter imprisoned, sets himself up like some sort of deity, and he receives praise like a god. And as a result, he finds that he has God Almighty as his enemy, and he meets his demise. And after observing the foolish finish of his life, we will make some observations for our own lives this morning regarding the issue of pride. We will see that pride provokes, that pride plunges, and we will see that humility heals. And so I will pray for us, and then we will jump into Acts 12, 20-25. Let's pray. Lord, Of all days, it is appropriate for us to pray today that you would humble us before your word. We would not be proud. I pray that we would be open to the fact that we may be proud. That we would be open to what you would have to say to us. You might put your finger on some painful places this morning, Lord, in our lives. Places where we are lifted up against you. And if 
We have those places, God. Indeed, show them to us and bring us low and help us to take in the truth of the Scripture this morning and to apply it to our lives immediately and that we would seek humility. And in seeking humility, truly, we will be seeking you. So guide us, Lord, through this time as we study your Bible and we thank you for the truth of the word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Acts 12, starting in verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. King Agrippa has been like a new Saul of Tarsus for the church in Jerusalem. If you remember, it was Saul's persecution before his conversion that scattered the church back in chapter 8. A relative time of peace ensued after that scattering At the end of Acts 9, in verse 31, Luke reports on that peace. But as we got to chapter 12, that peace was gone. The dust was being kicked up again in terms of persecution. This time it was by this puppet king, Herod Agrippa I. After attacking the leadership of the church in Jerusalem, in martyring James and imprisoning Peter, we now see him in a dispute with the cities of Tyre and Sidon in verse 20. The Greek word for anger in verse 20 literally means very angry. And so he is livid with the people of these cities. We don't know all the ins and outs of the situation, why he was in such a heated rage over these Phoenician cities, But we do know that it had something to do with food. Luke says that they were depending on food from Herod's country. So it seems like food is being shipped from Herod's territory in Galilee to them. Tyre and Sidon were free, self-governing cities. But evidently, they had some sort of trade agreement worked out to receive food from Galilee. But something has occurred that has caused Herod to shut down this exchange and the food is not flowing to southern Syria any longer. Luke tells us that they come to the king with one accord, meaning their governing officials probably sent a delegation to have an audience with Herod. And this seems to be arranged through Blastus, who is the keeper of the king's bedroom. That's what the word chamberlain literally means, the one in charge of the king's bedchamber. So this is a man who's very trusted by Herod Agrippa I, and they arrange through this man to have this audience with the king. Now, while God's word is sufficient, and it is in no need of help, We can pull on some extra biblical resources to fill in some blanks this morning, to connect some dots. In particular, we get help 
from the Jewish historian Josephus. Josephus is a name you might have heard before. He was a contemporary of the early church. His writings tell us a whole lot about the first century, uh, first century Judaism, first century Judea, the history of Judea in general. And Josephus records that Agrippa had gone to Caesarea for a jubilee in honor of the emperor. We don't know what that jubilee was. Possibly it was the quadrennial games, which were kind of like the ancient Olympics. He doesn't write anything about the food situation with Tyre and Sidon. Doesn't write anything about the delegation or Blastus. That doesn't mean Luke is wrong, and it doesn't mean Josephus is wrong. Instead, they are simply both describing different aspects of the same visit. Luke is telling us something extra, aside from the event honoring the emperor, about Herod's visit. As he is making this visit, apparently he is going to have this audience with this delegation. As we get to verses 21 and 22, Luke seems to be describing an incident that occurs with the people of Tyre and Sidon as well as with others present. Herod has his royal robes on. He takes his seat upon a throne and he delivers an oration. Josephus says that Herod was clad in a robe made altogether of silver, of quite wonderful weaving. In verse 22, the people start shouting at him, the voice of a God and not of a man. Again, Josephus provides commentary. He said it was morning as the sun rose, its rays of light hit Herod's silver robe. And the people started saying, be gracious to us. Hitherto we have reverenced you as a human being, but henceforth we confess you to be of more than mortal nature. There is no evidence in God's word, and there is no evidence in the writings of Josephus that Herod attempted to deflect this ill-placed praise. He was happy to receive this adulation from the people as if he is a god. Here's what Matthew Henry says about this. Many heathen princes claimed and received divine honors, but it was, far, uh, it was a far more horrible impiety in Herod, who knew the word and worship of the living God, to accept such idolatrous honors without a rebuking the blasphemy. Herod should have known as the quote-unquote Jewish king that you do not do this, that you do not try to steal glory from Yahweh. But he makes no attempt to deflect the praise. He receives it. And as a result, in verse 23, Herod is struck down by the Lord. Luke says that immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he is eaten by worms and breathes his last. This is a place that many have accused the Bible of a discrepancy because Josephus' writings say that Herod had a stab of pain to the heart. And then he was gripped in his stomach by an ache that he felt everywhere at once and that was intense from the start. And it seems like Herod dies not long after that pain began, but that it did not happen on the spot. And so a lot of people say, look, there's a difference between what the Bible says and what this trusted historian has to say. But in reality, it's not a discrepancy. It's easily reconciled. What Luke tells us is that God sent the angel to strike Herod in the moment, immediately. 
He doesn't deflect the praise. He pridefully receives it. And immediately an angel strikes Herod with an illness that will kill him. But Luke doesn't actually say when he died and breathed his last. In the years that followed, many have speculated that Herod actually died of appendicitis. In 2011, I had appendicitis. For a couple of days, my entire torso was hurting. When it peaked, it felt like somebody was squeezing my ribcage and trying to crush it. And I felt pain from my heart all the way down into my stomach. And then as I started to feel sharp pains, and after doing a little bit of Googling, I told my wife in the middle of the night, we better go to the hospital. When we got to the hospital, they made me drink some stuff, and they looked at pictures, and they said, yep, you've, uh, you've, got, you've got appendicitis, and we're going to have to remove your appendix. When they went in to remove my appendix, they found it had ruptured all over the place. And I was in the hospital for a week with a tube coming out of my stomach as they pumped all the bile out of my body. It was, it was a grand time. But I can tell you that the sort of pain that Josephus described, uh, I could very easily see that being what ultimately took Herod out. That when that angel of the Lord come, the angel of the Lord maybe struck his appendix. We don't know for sure, but you could see how that possibly was the case. You can see that without the help of modern medicine, that appendicitis certainly could lead to someone's death. Luke also says he was eaten by worms and died, which was actually a very common phrase used in the Greco-Roman world to describe the death of horrible people who deserved to die. And it's not necessarily meant to be taken literally. Here's David Peterson on this. We're not necessarily meant to think of an angelic appearance, as in verses 7-11, through 11, talking about Peter's uh, rescue, but rather that the affliction was sent by God as a punishment, the particular manner of his death, he was eaten by worms and died, is frequently mentioned by ancient writers, especially as having been endured by people who were considered to have richly deserved it. In the same vein, Eckhart Schnabel says, Luke describes Agrippa's death as the result of being eaten by worms, a Greek expression that is not a medical term. And of course, after Herod's body went into the ground, what would have happened to him? He would have been eaten by worms. After Herod dies, despite his best efforts, the gospel still stands. The word of God in verse 24 is increasing and multiplying. The implication is that this increases in Judea, the very place where he ruled. Furthermore, Barnabas and Saul, having taken the money to the church in Jerusalem, returned to Antioch. And we're going to see them next week set apart and commissioned, preparing to take the gospel to the rest of the Roman world. So not only is the gospel advancing in Judea, it is going to the end of the earth as Jesus promised in Acts 1.8. Herod Agrippa tried to stop the gospel, but he failed. And ultimately he died and the gospel lives on. Understanding the passage, let's take some time to dive further into the issue that Saul Herod struck down in the first place. Ultimately, his cause of death is not appendicitis or any other medical condition that he had. His cause of death is pride. 
That is what brought on the punishment from God. Number one this morning, we see that pride provokes. Pride provokes the Lord. In verse 22, Herod sets himself up like a god. He makes no effort to turn away the unnatural exaltation of the people. It's unnatural for a person to be praised as a god. And so as this praise is laid down at his feet, he should have turned it away, but he doesn't do that. Compare that with Peter back at Cornelius' house in Acts 10. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I too am a man. Or compare it with Paul and Barnabas. When they're in Lystra in Acts 14. And the people start worshipping them like they are Greek gods. They actually say, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, Luke says, and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priests of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice to the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd crying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Paul and Barnabas don't receive the worship. Instead, they tear their garments in distress, in grief over the idolatry of the people, and they run into the crowd and say, turn your attention to the Lord. Focus on Him, not us. Herod, on the other hand, was like the king of Tyre in Ezekiel 28, Ithabal III. Listen to Ezekiel's prophecy regarding the king of Tyre. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is proud and you have said I am a god, I sit in the seat of gods in the heart of the seas, yet you are but a man and no god. Though you make your heart like the heart of a god, you are indeed wiser than Daniel. No secret is hidden from you. By your wisdom and your understanding, you have made wealth for yourself and have gathered gold and silver into your treasuries. By your great wisdom and your trade, you have increased your wealth and your heart has become proud in your wealth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you made your heart like the heart of a God, therefore, behold, I will bring foreigners upon you, the most ruthless of nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They shall thrust you down into the pit, and you shall die the death of the slain in the heart of the seas. Will you still say, I am a God, in the presence of those who kill you, though you are but a man? And no God in the hands of those who slay you. Because he has set himself up like a God, because his heart is proud in his wealth, God's wrath is provoked. And so in 28 verse 10, God says, You shall die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of foreigners, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. See, pride is a unique sort of sin. It is not a sin that seeks to lure you away from God to worship false gods. 
but it is a sin that cheers you on to challenge God Himself. Pride doesn't just try to create little thrones over here on the side for you to go and worship at an idolatrous manner. Pride comes for God's very throne and says, I should sit there. I should be the one that gets to call the shots. I'm the one that should have authority. I'm the one that should have glory. I'm the one that should be entitled to whatever I want. This is the sin that was in the heart of the very first transgression against God in the case of Adam and Eve. When Satan tempted Eve, he tempted her with the possibility of being like God. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That's what Satan whispered to her. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Come on, this rebellion's not going to kill you. It'll give you God's chair. Go ahead, take it. And we can say that this is really what is at the core of every sin ever since. It is pride that says, I get to do what I want when I want to do it. It is pride that says, I should get to have what I want when I want to have it. It is pride that says, I should get to be who I want to be when I want to be. And this pride, which is a direct challenge to the crown of God and the authority of God and the position of God, draws his ire, it draws his indignation The Puritan Thomas Brooks said, Pride is a sin that will put the soul upon the worst of sins. Pride is a gilded misery, a secret poison, a hidden plague. It is the engineer of deceit, the mother of hypocrisy, the parent of mercy, the moth of holiness, the blinder of hearts, the turner of medicines into maladies and remedies into diseases." The breadth of the Bible's teaching reveals that Brooks is right. It is filled with warnings that God's wrath will come against pride. That God's wrath is provoked by pride. Psalm 94 verse 2, Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserved. God warned Babylon through the mouth of Jeremiah and said, Summon archers against Babylon, all those who bend the bow. Encamp around her. Let no one escape. Repay her according to her deeds. Do to her according to all that she has done. For she has proudly defied the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Therefore her young men shall fall in her squares, and all her soldiers shall be destroyed on that day, declares the Lord. Behold, I am against you, O proud one, declares the Lord of hosts. For your day has come, the time when I will punish you. He did the same as he admonished the privileged and the prideful in Israel through Amos. The Lord has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds, and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. In the New Testament, as Paul talks about God's wrath being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, He says that God has given idolatrous people up to their sins. He has given them over to a debased mind. 
And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, Paul says, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Notice that haughtiness, pride, boastfulness are listed right next to sins such as murder, sins such as inventing evil and hating God. Similarly, in 2 Timothy 3, Paul is describing the sins that will be committed in the last days, and he says, For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Lovers of self, proud, arrogant, swollen with conceit. These are all hallmarks of a perishing world that has provoked the wrath of God in the last age of the earth. Pride provokes. And so understanding that, we understand that pride plunges as well. It provokes the wrath of God, and since it provokes the wrath of God, pride will be plunged down in punishment. So that's our second point this morning, pride plunges. In Matthew 23, 12, Jesus gives what I'll call a universal principle. It's universal to the whole of Scripture, and it's universal to the way the world works. He says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. If you exalt yourself, you will be humbled. If not now, then later. If not in this life, then in the judgment that comes at the end of this life. We see this in Herod. He exalts himself and he is struck down. Not only that, but as he dies, the gospel that he tried to stop continues to advance. He becomes a tragic tale while the gospel marches forth triumphantly. Herod is not the only one who experiences this in the Scriptures. We see it in the case of Nebuchadnezzar who stood before mighty Babylon and said, Look what I have done! Is this not great Babylon? Which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence? And for the glory of my majesty, he exalted himself. And so what happens? God brought him low. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like the bird's claws. You see it in the case of Uzziah, who was a good king, who at the end of his reign spoiled by pride. 2 Chronicles 26.16 But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. In God's book of wisdom, the Proverbs, there are 
warnings that those who are prideful will be brought low. Proverbs 11, verse 2, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. Proverbs 15, 25, the Lord tears down the house of the proud. Proverbs 18, 12, before destruction, a man's heart is haughty or proud. Proverbs 29, 23, one's pride will bring him low. The prophet Isaiah was also clear about how God will humble the proud. In Isaiah 2, verse 12, For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Five verses later in verse 17, And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of man shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And then in Isaiah 5, verse 15, man is humbled and each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. The clear rhythm of Scripture is that those who lift themselves up will be laid to the ground by the Lord. Whether it is Pharaoh being humbled by the plagues and ultimately the waters of the Red Sea, or it's Jonah pridefully running and being cast into the depths of the sea and then the belly of the fish, or it's Peter catching Jesus' eyes after he pridefully swore he would never deny Christ, but then he denies him not once, not twice, but three times. What you see again and again in the Bible is that the Lord humbles the proud. He humbles His people, believers who are proud. He humbles unbelievers who are proud. There is no neck that stretches itself out against the King of Heaven that will remain stretched out and lifted. Whether it is in repentance or it is in recompense, the self-exalted will be soundly humbled. Josiah Schutz said, The more lofty a man's thoughts be, the more base shall the means of his humiliation be. After hearing all of that, you'd be a fool not to be concerned about the issue of pride. God opposes the proud. God levels the proud and brings them low. God's sights are on the proud man And God does not miss. So are you proud? If you would say, absolutely not, never, that might not be a great sign. Jonathan Edwards said pride is complex. It's like an onion. You peel off one layer only to find there's another there. So how prideful are we? Well, let me ask you this. How easily angered are you? How much does someone have to disagree with you before your hackles are up? How easily offended are you? How much does someone have to say to you before you're crossed? Does it take very little for you to feel like somebody has lanced your flesh? See, we mostly think of those who are prideful as those who go around offending people all the time. And there's truth to that. That's certainly the way some prideful people are. They're self-centered. They don't really care who gets hurt as they go about pursuing their desires. And so they just are brashly going through life, offending people all the time because they are prideful. Because they really can't see past their own nose. 
They only think of themselves. And you think, well, that's, that's, I know what a prideful person is. That's what they look like. They're selfish, and it's easy to spot. But we have to recognize it is just as prideful to be constantly offended by others. This is also a sign of thinking the whole world is about you. When you think everyone's out to get you and you think every move they make is somehow about you. Whether you are constantly the offended or the offender, if you find that you're stomping around in your heart, swearing under your breath, assuming the worst of others and the best of yourself, the best of your attitude, the best of your actions, what it reveals is a heart that is proud. You've put a massive value on yourself. And when people aren't willing to pay the price you have set, you're ready to kick them out of the store of your life, the store of your day, the store of your team, the store of your family, the store of your church, whatever. You may be closer to a Herodian pride than you'd ever want to admit. So what's the remedy? How do we root out this rottenness? Well, the answer is found in pride's enemy. Pride's great opposition, which is humility. So pride provokes and pride plunges, but humility, point number three, heals. Going back to Jesus' universal principle in Matthew 23, let's not forget the other half of it. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. We should not be surprised at this. God loves humility. He revealed this through the mouths of his prophets. Isaiah 66, 2. All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. In Micah 6, we get the basics on what it is to walk with God. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. He revealed this to King Solomon. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and will forgive their sin, and heal their land. The Psalms highlight great promises regarding humility. Psalm 18.27 tells us God saves the humble people. Psalm 25.9 tells us that God leads and teaches the humble. Psalm 147 verse 6, that God lifts up the humble. Psalm 149, verse 4, that God will adorn the humble with salvation. The Proverbs record promises for the humble. Toward the scorners, He is scornful, but to the humble, He gives favor. Proverbs 22, 4, the reward for humility and the fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. If you go back to those Proverbs I mentioned earlier when we were talking about how pride plunges, we learned that with the humble is wisdom. And that humility comes before honor. And that he who is lowly in spirit obtains honor. And so seeing the plunge that pride brings 
and the healing that humility brings, who wouldn't want humility? The question is, how do we get it? Is humility something that we can muster up? Something we can will ourselves to? I want to offer some practical advice from Thomas Watson. In his Body of Divinity, Watson gives four very practical helps for humility. I shared these with the men in our men's breakfast and Bible study. So for those 25 men or so, the Lord's saying this to you twice. Watson says there's four places we should look in order to stir ourselves up to repent of pride and to humble ourselves before God. Number one, he says we should look intranos, which means within us. Look within yourself. Because when you really examine yourself, what do you find? Well, you find a whole lot of sin. You find a lot of stuff that God is still dealing with you on. You find a bunch of imperfections crawling around in your soul like rats and roaches that need to be exterminated. And if you don't think you have those things, look again. He says if we need to be humbled, look juxtanos, look about us. Because in the church, if you stop and you start to look around you, what you're going to see is a bunch of other Christians who have gifting that you don't have, who know the Bible better than you, who serve more gladly and more often than you, who give more than you, who encourage people more than you, who pray more than you. Just stop and look around at the people of the church and it won't take long to be impressed with what God has made of them. And then you're humbled when you look at yourself and go, man, there's so much work that He still has to do in me. He says if you need humility, look infranos, meaning look below us. Because when you look under your feet, what do you see? I know this morning you see carpet, but if you go outside, what do you see? You see dirt. And your father, Adam, was made from that dirt. You're a son of Adam. Adam was a son of dirt. What is dirt, as Watson says, but the son of nothing? How can you possibly be so impressed with yourself when ultimately we're all dirt women and dirt men? We're not made of gold. We're people of dust. Why do we exalt ourselves? So we look within us. We look about us. We look below us. And most importantly, Watson says, supranos, we look above us. We look up to Jesus who is exalted at the right hand of the Father, but we remember that as we see Him there in session at God's right hand, He got there through a pathway of humility. In Philippians 2, Paul gives these commands to the church. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Oh, if we could all do that, but easier said than done, right? Well, Paul knows that. And so he says, here's where you need to have your mind set in order to really accomplish these things. 
Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so the Son of God in the flesh did not count equality with the Father as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. And his servanthood was to be born in the likeness of men in a place where animals used the bathroom. To a pair of fairly poor parents. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the will of the Father every step of the way in his life, in attitude, in actions, in totality. And he did this all the way to his death on the cross where he suffered for sin that he did not commit. And then he rose again triumphantly and ascended to the right hand of the father triumphantly and our humble king was exalted and received the name of lord forever therefore god has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that jesus christ is lord to the glory of god the father whoever humbles himself will be exalted. If you're struggling for humility, you can look within and you can look around and you can look below you, but primarily look to Jesus. The way of the cross and the person of Christ shows us humility. Band's going to come back to lead us in our last song today. Maybe you hear all of this this morning and you are laid out by it. You may not be Herod shimmering in the sun, but you've been prideful enough. You may have known it coming in and you've been trying to avoid the cold hard facts of your own pride and you've been confronted with it today in a way you cannot deny. Maybe you did not know it, but God's Word has exposed you this morning and and, and has revealed in you pride this morning. And you're sitting there this morning going, wow, I got some pride to deal with. Just remember what James tells us. Remember what Peter tells us in his first epistle. God opposes the proud. That is true. But He gives grace to the humble. So repent of the self-exaltation in your life this morning and exalt Christ in your heart by bowing low before Him. Confess your sin in ashes and ask God to keep your heart low until the day comes when you are raised up with Him in glory. We must do this work. William Grinnell said, Oh, this is the way of killing this weed of pride. To break up our hearts and turn the inside outward. I mean humble and abase ourselves for our former abominations. If you care about a garden, you don't let weeds stay in it. How much more should we care for the garden of our own hearts? Weed out pride. God struck down Herod 
Don't keep opposing him in pride. Instead, weed it out and strike it down. Father, we thank you for the example of Christ this morning. He is the greatest, and yet he shows us what it looks like to be humble and to be lowly. I pray, Father, that we would take Thomas Watson's advice, that we would recognize the sin in our own lives and be humbled by it, that we would recognize the way that you are working in others around us in magnificent and glorious ways, and we would be humbled by it, that we would recognize that we are sons and daughters of the dirt and be humbled by it, but that most of all we would look to your son Jesus, that we would be humbled by his example and we would also walk in it with humility. We know what pride does, Lord. It provokes your wrath. It will be plunged down. We have to run from it. Don't let us be a prideful people. Make us a humble people, a humble church, down to the individual man, the individual woman. May we be marked with Christ-like humility. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to close up this time by singing, dedicating ourselves to the Lord. If you don't have a relationship with the Lord Jesus, that's where humility starts. It is admitting to God that you are a sinner and that you are at odds with Him because of your sin. It is turning away from that sin and turning to Him in humble faith and confessing Him as Lord and confessing yourself as not being Lord and um, giving your life to Him, surrendering to Him, yielding to Him. And so if you've never done that and you would like to do that and you would like to talk to somebody about that today, uh, I will be around afterwards. Pastor Ben will be around afterwards. You can also write that on that Connect card that is in your worship guide or you can email or text us at connect at seafordbaptist.com. But we would love to talk to you about, the, uh, about having a relationship with Jesus and the humility, uh, and the place that humility begins in that relationship with Him. Let's lift our voices to the Lord.